Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of God. Good morning. If you are new or if you are visiting here for the very first time, just want to say that we are so glad that you are with us. And we are currently in our sermon series on the Bible, We Thought We Knew. And we are actually beginning to wrap up this sermon series as we're heading into the Advent season. So for the next few weeks, we're going to just go through uh, the narratives of the, uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. So we'll go into the likes of Joseph and Mary. And this morning, we want to talk about the prophets before uh, the birthing of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask that you guys would join me in prayer this morning as we dive into the Word. Uh, Lord God, we want to um, thank you at this time. We come before you. We honor you. Lord God, for everyone um, that is here that proclaims Christ, may we worship you freely and fully. Lord God, may we come in repentance and brokenness, Lord God, for you are a saving God. And Lord God, for the ones that are within this room right now that may be distant, Lord God, or maybe even declare, Lord God, that they knew you. Lord God, I pray that this word this morning will be truth and it will be a redemptive reality, Lord God. Lord God, that you will convict, you will pierce our hearts so that we can know you clearly and that there is hope in the name of Jesus. God, I pray at this time that you will use this word. Lord God, and you will allow me to speak clearly. Lord, I desire to be an instrument within the Redeemer's hands, so may you use me accordingly to your strength. We thank you, we praise you, we lift all of these things up to you. In your Son's name we pray, amen. Now, when we uh, consider the holiday season, it's you know, often filled with Christmas lights, uh, family gatherings and gift exchanges. Uh, this holiday season, though, is always meant to be a time of celebration. Holidays are supposed to be a time of joy. But for some people, if we are honest, they are anything but. In fact, 
Many would say that the holiday uh, season is often a high season of depression because it's often a reminder uh, for people of what they actually don't have. It's a reminder of the things that they miss. It's a reminder of the things that they want. Um, some statistics will even show that there's a higher rate of depression because, because um, that there is a lack of fulfillment and they're more likely to experience loneliness. In other words, the season feels like a time of isolation, being reminded of what they don't have. And for many in this season, it's not necessarily of joy. And for us today, if you are in this room, it may not necessarily be the holiday season, but the point is this, is that you and I all experience seasons. We all go through it. There are always seasons of brokenness, suffering, and despair. One well-known pastor says it this way, that you are in season or you are getting ready for one. In Isaiah chapter 9, the people of God are going through one of these seasons, and it was filled with much distress and much despair. But what Isaiah is doing is he's prophesying to the people of God. He's giving them a vivid reminder to everyone in this room and to the people of God to not lose hope in the present season of darkness. For there is and there will be a light found in a Son of God. We find it this morning in Jesus Christ. So I do have three points for us this morning regarding Isaiah's prophecy of the Son of God. The three points, the need for Jesus, the hope in Jesus, and finally, the promise of Jesus, the need, the hope, and the promise. First point is the need. Read verse 1 with me. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, as I just mentioned, this passage was written by Isaiah. Who was Isaiah? Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet of God's word. And in these ancient times, uh, a prophet was a very special role. Uh, a prophet would receive the visions and the words of God specifically to this prophet. And the call of the prophet was to share this uh, to his people. Specifically, he was to speak on behalf of God, and he spoke to the people of God. And here, the prophet of Isaiah is delivering his message to the people of Israel while they were facing much persecution, specifically um, from Syria. Uh, in Assyria, they would eventually destroy parts of Israel, and it would lead the people of God into captivity, meaning... For God's people in this time, there would be much humiliation, there would be oppression, there was defeat, 
leaving to them in their gloom and despair. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, right before Isaiah 9, it says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Church, I want us to consider the weightiness and the heaviness of this verse with me. That the people of God, in their circumstance, they have lost their identity, they have lost their dignity, and they have lost their purpose. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, when you read uh, verse 2, um, we want to remember that uh, in the Hebrew, specifically when we're looking at Isaiah, we're seeing a Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry was often written in stanzas. So when you look at verse 2, we see the first stanza as kind of like a statement. And then there's a second stanza, and this repeat uh, is very similar, but just kind of gives you a little bit more detail. So reading verse 2 again we see that the people were walking in darkness, statement, but the detail is that they are in the land of the shadow of death. Now, when we see the shadow of death, uh, the literal terms of the Hebrew is that they are walking in a death darkness, meaning that their trouble casts like a death-like shadow. So here we are. God's people are walking in the shadow of death darkness, meaning every step that they took was never in a forward direction, for they were always looking at what was behind them, and they were always looking at what was surrounding them. They were always in a great fear of dark corners, and they were paranoid of what was lingering around them. In other words, to walk in the shadow of death is to be paralyzed in a fear of loss. And if we're honest, there are parts of our lives where we are just walking in a death darkness. We're so fearful of losing the most important parts of our lives. Now, what do I mean by loss? You know, loss is interesting because loss comes in so many different shapes and forms. But the simple of the matter of fact is, is that whenever you lose something, it's actually really difficult, right? Consider losing something very small. You ever lost your lip balm? You ever lose your keys? You ever lose your phone? I don't know about you, but whenever I lose even the smallest of things, like I cannot concentrate. In that moment, I'm trying to say, my lips are chapped. I need my lip balm. Where's it at? And I won't move until I actually find it. Loss. It's difficult and it's crippling. It, it doesn't allow you to, to move. If I could explain a little bit further for the fact that we all wrestle with loss, uh, in 2014, there's a company uh, named Tile. And this company had a simple idea, and the simple idea was this, was to be the world's largest 
lost and found. So tile, all tile is, is this little piece of plastic. And what this little piece of plastic does is it connects to your smart device. So you can put it on a keychain, you can put it on, on a bag or in your wallet. So well, whenever they go missing, all you have to do is you can just go on the app and the app will tell you where this lost item actually is. But here's the interesting part about Tile, is that in uh, 2016, there's this milestone moment for this business that they made $100 million in re revenue and 10 million units were sold. What does that tell us? Is that loss is something that we are all affected by. It's so difficult to the point of $100 million in revenue just to find something. Loss is difficult. Now, I want us to consider this. What happens when your loss is much bigger than your iPhone? The loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, or maybe in circumstance, it is the loss of your identity. And for the Israelites in Isaiah 9, they lost much more than their keys. And there was no title app for this. They lost their identity. They lost their security and their purpose. So for the Israelites, they only walked within the shadow of death. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. When we look at the Israelite history, they were actually known for a lot of things, but the one thing they probably might not be proud of is that they were known to be forgetful. See, in Old Testament times, God has promised David that his throne would lead God's people into salvation. But by Isaiah's time, the many members of the dynasty of David, they no longer trusted the promises of God, and then they would now trust in the promises of this earthly world. See, the most dangerous part of this shadow of death, this death darkness is actually our own hearts. It's actually our own susceptibility to self-deception and self-absorption in darkness. And I would say that it's much, probably one of the greatest dangers because in loss, if you are self-deceived, self-absorbed, then you become a little hopeless. You get consumed by what you lost. And I just want to say that from my experience, I've come to realize that that is a very powerless and very anxiety-filled life. And the question for us this morning is how do you respond in your seasons of death darkness? Are you trusting God during this time of despair are you seeking hope when there is a considerable loss? And I just want to let you know this morning to be encouraged. There are no dark corners in the kingdom of God. There are no shadows that the light cannot expose. There is no despair that grace cannot confront and if this is you, just like everyone in this room, 
We are all in need of hope. And we proclaim that in Christ this morning. That is our second point. We find our hope in Jesus. Look at verse 3 with me. You have enlarged the nation and you have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Now here in verse 3, we're slowly transitioning from this death darkness to an increased joy. Specifically, we're beginning to see this reference of warriors in a war battlefield but they're actually rejoicing because they're receiving the goods and the property because of this victory. What's Isaiah's point? Isaiah's point is that, yes, there is a battle between darkness and light, but Isaiah is boldly declaring that the victory has been won. See, in light of victory, in light of this truth, in this proclamation, know that there is hope for you in the midst of this light. And what I love about this victorious light, what I love about this is in uh, Isaiah, uh, it actually tells us how we get the victory. Look at verse 4 and 5 with me. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Now, what's Isaiah talking about right now? Now, when Isaiah mentions uh, the day of Midian, he's referring to the, the defeat of God's enemies. Specifically in Judges uh, chapter 6, uh, we would see that there would be this time where there's going to be a vast multitude of enemies just swarming all over the land of Israel. So there's going to be much heavy oppression. So that's why Isaiah says that there's a yoke that burdens with the rod of their oppressor. But what do we see starting from Judges chapter 7? God would appoint a judge named Gideon. And Gideon would assemble this large army against the Midianites. Uh, Gideon would be ready for war. He would actually assemble uh, 32,000 soldiers. But what do we see in Judges chapter 7? As Gideon is ready for war, as he's ready to prepare for battle, and he's ready to fight with 32,000 with him, God says, hold up, slow down, I want you to do something else. I want you to send them home. So from there, he would send 30,000 home, and it would go down to 300. So the question is, in this uh, Judges chapter 6 and 7 context, is why would he reduce the army? See, he was very clear. The God of Israel was very deliberate. He wanted to remind the people that it is not based on their own strength that can save. See, in your seasons of death and darkness, our initial response is always trying to overcome. It's always trying to assemble the greatest army. It's always trying to prepare the nicest resume. It's all about achieving more and having more. But let me tell you, the more you have, the more fear that you get. 
the more that you receive, the more anxiety you will be filled with. Because you're now just dealing with unnecessary loss. It's not even that important. See, God gives us the formula that in death, darkness, trust in the one, just simply obey in the one that went through the ultimate death, darkness. See, our saving hope, our saving grace in darkness will only come true if you come into a disposition of being vulnerable to him. See, what do we see in Judges chapter 6 is that Gideon became vulnerable by giving up all of his resources. He gave up thousands of men in war. In the same way, you and I, we are to come vulnerable by giving up our pride and repentance. So now the question becomes, how do we come to this point of vulnerability? The answer is this, and we find it in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. How do we become vulnerable to God? How do we begin to trust him a little bit more and we take away the trust of our resources? We do this by realizing that Jesus Christ first became vulnerable to us. He came as a child. It comes from the one that understands darkness. It comes from the one that knows your suffering. It comes from the one that understands what it means to be left completely vulnerable, left for dead. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he became flesh. The ultimate vulnerability is in Jesus Christ, that God was so vulnerable that he would become a human being to experience a suffering that he didn't have to suffer. That Jesus Christ in full vulnerability as an infant baby, he would carry the burdens of this world on the cross in exchange for a yoke that is light. Let his vulnerability, a son that was born in flesh, melt you in a vulnerability towards him. Remember Psalm 23, verse 4, with confidence that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Jesus Christ shattered the yoke that burdens us. He removes the bar on our shoulders in full vulnerability. And he would place it on his shoulders by carrying an old rugged cross. Listen, this morning, I just want to let you know that if you are in a season, there is hope for you. And his burden is easy. His burden is light as he declares. There is a promise that is given. That does lead to our third point. Verse 6. 
and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and a Prince of Peace. What I love about verse 6 as we read about who he is, it's a declaration. See, in the Bible, uh, whenever you see uh, the name, uh, it's not just the name, right? Whenever you see names, it's an indicator of character. It's an indicator of the essence and nature of that person. So when we see wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and a prince of peace, it's actually a declaration of not just of who he is, but the promises that come with his name. So it tells us, what does his promise look like? Well, first thing we see is that, number one, he is a wonderful counselor. Now, when you look at wonderful counselor, uh, the, in the Hebrew, uh, the root of wonder, it, it comes specifically from uh, Psalm 78, verses 12. And the root is often described as the miracles that God would perform in Egypt. It's referring to what God actually did uh, during that time. And secondly, whenever you see the word counselor, it's always a reference to a king. Why? Because kings of that time would always seek counsel, right, from advisors and counselors, and he would ask them for help. So when we see wonderful counselor, what we're seeing is that this God, he's a king that gives words of wisdom. If I can say it this way, Jesus Christ, our wonderful counselor, gives us miraculous wisdom. His counsel is so wise that when you trust in his words and you commit and you submit yourself to the very word of God, it radically will transform your life. This wonderful counselor, he doesn't just give you a 10-step program on how to improve your life. He only gives you one, and he actually did it for you by being vulnerable. All we got to do is open our eyes. And it is more than enough. Jesus Christ, he hears you in darkness. He offers you a light. And if you stick with the process, if you trust in it just a little bit, he will sanctify your heart in, se- in season. Secondly, what, a, what do we know more about his promises? We see he promises that he is a mighty God. Jesus Christ is a mighty God. He is mighty to save. He is strong and powerful. Now, what does this promise mean? It means this. It means that there is no sin that God can't handle. There is nothing he can't absorb. So what does that mean for us right now in the moment? It means to stop functioning in a way where God is going to be disappointed in you because of what you did. Come to God in repentance for you know that he can handle it. If I can say it this way, what is just as sinful as the sins that you commit is the fact that you don't view God as a mighty God that can actually deal with it. Third promise, Jesus Christ is an everlasting father. 
Now, in a social climate where uh, fatherlessness is actually at an all-time high, we now see that Jesus Christ is an everlasting father. It's the reminder that he cares for you. He loves you. That when you are alone, when you feel like an orphan, that you can be reminded of Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, that in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is nothing you can do for him to love you less. There is nothing you can do for him to love you more. He is a good, good father, and we are loved by him. You will never be left astray. All of the abandon that we've ever dealt with in our lives, from all the disappointments from friends and family and fathers and mothers and so on and so on, I just want to let you know that this morning, the one that has never left is an everlasting Father, King Jesus. And that is a promise, and it is declared. Finally, what does he say? He promises that he is a Prince of Peace. I love that. Just as the Prince of Peace, he tells us, that he is restoring, that this Prince of Peace has a plan, and it's a plan of restoration. It's a plan of perfect shalom unto our worlds and unto our lives. And when I say shalom, it's simply just a kingdom-minded peace. And this kingdom-level peace, it radically transforms our hearts and it will radically transform the city. That in this uh, plan from a prince of peace, what he's doing is he's restoring darkness unto light. He's restoring chaos unto order. He's restoring a curse until there is a day of perfect justice, true righteousness for sinners like you and I. And that's why in verse 7 he declares, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Listen, in darkness, we are promised of a great light. We are promised of who he is and what he has done. And my encouragement for us this morning is to trust in it because the time ahead will be very long. In fact, when we look at Isaiah 9 and to Matthew chapter 1, it was an estimated 750 years before Jesus came. And the reality is, is that when you go back home, it's going to feel long. For some of us, it may feel like 750 years. So cling on to his promise. Cling on to the truth. Then Isaiah 7:14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 2 tells us what Emmanuel means. It simply means God with us. Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, is with you in season. 
and he promises that he is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He is an everlasting father. And my, my, he is the prince of peace. So as we begin to land this plane, how do we apply this text today? Uh, I think simply as a church, as the people of God, uh, let this prophecy uh, uh, draw to him. But I I think also very practically, uh, let it draw us to being more community dependent. Uh, Begin to live a life where you are dependent on the Lord, but also do it within the context of community. Walk with people being reminded of Isaiah chapter 9. And I'm not talking about just for the holiday season. We all said that life is filled with seasons. As that pastor said, right, you are in season or you're getting ready for one. We all go through seasons. So in light of Isaiah 9, let it convict you to become more community dependent. Meaning, sometimes we got to be a counselor when people are in need of counsel. Be a counselor when someone needs to heard. Be a counselor when someone needs to hear a good word based on Scripture. It means to be mighty. It means to be strong for people when they are weak. It means that you will do Galatians chapter 6 and you will carry a burden and it will be a heavy burden, but you will commit to it for you see the cost. It means that some of us need to function fatherly. And you need to show grace, but at the same time, maybe you need to be a little bit more confident and rebuke and challenge and speak to their lives for the sake of their growth. And finally, pursue peace with one another. Pursue peace in your relationships. For when there is discord, when there is a lack of repentance, that you will champion, that you will function as a prince of peace to their lives and you will walk with them in their relationships and you will draw them to repentance. As we begin this Advent season, will you consider that in your seasons of darkness, make yourself vulnerable to Christ and make yourself vulnerable to a community that centers itself in Christ so that the grace of God will melt your heart of stone to a heart of worship. Would you join me in prayer this morning?